So at this time, please turn with me to the book of Hosea. This time, Todd normally will come up and pray for us, but I will just have that prayer as a part of my normal introduction. The book of Hosea, we're going to be in chapter 7 today, starting in verse 3, and we'll look through the end of the chapter. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, for many of us, we feel the effects of the fall daily. We feel them physically. We feel them mentally. We feel them even in our spirit. We feel them as we see the world around us. And so Lord, as we come to Your Word, we pray not only that You would use it to change us, that we would grow more and more to be like You, our Lord. But also, Lord, that we would turn away from those worldly sources of comfort. That we would turn away from those things that give us rest in this world as we seek to turn away from the sources of depravity, even ourselves. And rather, we would turn to the only true thing, Your Word, that we would turn to the only source of peace, You. So Lord, as we come to Your Word this morning, we pray these things in Your name. Amen. So as I read through Hosea chapter 7, there is this picture over and over of an oven. This picture of an oven and different things coming out from that, which makes me, of course, think of baking. If, if cooking can be an art form, you know, cooking is kind of this art form, right? You can add things and subtract things and kind of make your own. Baking isn't like that at all. It's more of a science. It relies on chemical reactions, precise temperature settings, all of this sort of thing. It's easy to tell, it's easy to tell a baker that doesn't measure things. Their stuff is just, just very good. It's just not very good. Right? With cooking there's wiggle room, but with baking there's really not. There's sort of just these, even someone who doesn't really measure knows how things are supposed to be. Right? Who know, they know how things are supposed to look and feel. Too much of something, too little of something affects the outcome of the food significantly. So the picture of this oven is woven throughout Hosea 7. That, along with several other similes, how many times have I used the word simile in a sermon? That was probably the first time, but it's just, that's exactly what they are. We know what similes are. They make this text difficult to interpret and understand, right? Because a lot of these similes are kind of bound up in the cultural context of Hosea's day, which we are many moons removed from. Yet when we look at it in its immediate context, the meaning starts to become clear. Israel is a nation that has strayed from God. Because of that, everything about them changed. Their worship, their political sensibilities, their leadership, everything about them started to unravel. 
The prophet Hosea is putting it before them, helping them to understand the reason for their impending judgment. For the church today, this represents a warning. If you're tired of the warnings that we find in Scripture, remember that the next time you give your child advice that you know you're giving that them to them just to keep them from future grief. We're constantly familiar with these types of warnings, and that's what Scripture gives to us. It's a warning to our nation. It's a warning to the church that's in that nation. We do not worship a God who idly issues warnings either. So as we come to this text, we'll do well to see ourselves in the mirror. So we break down the text and consider three main points, the burning oven, the burned cake, and then the consuming fire. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Hosea chapter 7, verses 3 through 16. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Hosea 7, 3 through 16. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with their hearts, for, for with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like a bird of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them! For they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from their heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Over the last few weeks, we've broken away from the narrative of Hosea's life pretty much found in the first three chapters of this book, and now the focus of the book becomes the adultery of the people of Israel. The sin is against her husband, the Lord himself. Israel had committed adultery for years with foreign gods of the land, and now they were receiving 
these oracles of judgment, which we are not done with even in chapter 7. Hosea's life was a picture not only of that adultery and that judgment, but also of the redemption that awaited the people of God, which would ultimately, of course, come through our Lord Jesus and his coming, the Son of God incarnate. And while Jesus paid for the sins of his people on the cross, and his death would pay for the sins of those people in Hosea's day, also, don't don't miss that. Even the people of Hosea's day longed and looked forward to Jesus. It pays for the sins of the people today. We still see these acts of judgment against the covenant people of God. Why? Why do we still see these acts of judgment? Because of what good parent would not discipline their child? We see this theme coming forward quite a bit today because we see the picture of a child that needs it in our text. And so as we move forward, let's go to the first point, the burning oven. Looking at verse 3 again. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. So the picture here is of a people who are doing evil, which is really a common picture in the Bible, right? It's not uncommon for to see people in the Bible doing evil. We've been going through Judges. There's some very clear pictures of evil there, are there not? We finished Judges today. It has been a slog through evil people. I mean, that's pretty much it. We've seen that evil in Hosea's personal life. As we'll continue to see evil as we go through the history books in Sunday school, as we look at all of us, the Bible, as our, in our trek through the Bible, we're going to just see that. So what's the big deal here? In verse 3, by their evil, they make the kings glad. In this case, the leaders seem to enjoy it. Even the worst kinds of governments don't enjoy watching their people do evil. Even the worst kinds of leadership are against the evil of mankind, for the most part. Here, rather than seeking to get rid of evil, they are made glad by it. Imagine looking at evil and saying, that makes me so happy. That's exactly what's going on. Hosea gives us a picture, and he's giving us this first simile of the oven used in verse 4. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire while the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. So imagine an old oven. We don't have this sort of picture today. Yes, many of our grandparents used a wood stove uh, but none of us really have, unless you've gone camping or something like that, of a wood-burning oven. And it needs a certain kind of fire to work correctly. You can't just start using a wood-burning oven and know how to use it, right? It takes time. It takes a lot of finesse. It's not something, again, we don't use that very often. Some restaurants use them with like pizza ovens and that sort of thing. But you have to stoke the fire constantly in order to keep it lively. There's a science behind the fire as well, Stirring that fire gives it more surface area, exposes it to more oxygen, makes the fire burn hotter. It's just pretty standard. So the picture here, you have this baker who sets a fire, who doesn't stir the fire, but the fire is still going nonetheless. This fire is burning hot, even though it hasn't been stirred. Verse 6. 
For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. The ESV has a strange translation, or really just a strange word choice here. They approach their intrigue. It's more of the, the idea, maybe your translation has a better way of thinking about this, but they, it's basically the picture of someone lying in an ambush for the, for the right moment to pounce. It's kind of this smoldering oven. Someone is waiting for the opportunity to do something evil. And it's followed by the drunkenness that we see in, in verse 5. You get the idea that there's some sort of violent thing that's about to happen, some sort of violent political maneuvering, taking advantage of an opportunity. Well, in verse 7, you kind of see that. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls upon me. Verse 7 is confirmed by history. We've talked about this before. The northern kingdom had six rulers in their last 30 years as a nation. Four of them ascended by means of assassination. So you get this idea that there's kind of this lying in wait. There is this uh, kind of waiting in ambush. Understand. It is of a completely corrupt political and economic situation. There's no relief in sight. One that continues to smolder and grow hotter and hotter. And I'm sure this sounds very familiar to you if you've been alive in the last couple years. I understand I'm not making comment on our current president or any of that. This isn't a Republican-Democrat thing. If you think it is, you need to look a little more closely. When a nation separates itself from its creator, it's only a matter of time before things begin to unravel. And things have been slowly unraveling here since before even the crafting of the Declaration of Independence. And so we're not talking about the need to have a someone else in office because that's obviously not our problem. It's not about electing the right person. It's about repentance, which our country has been short on for, you know, since its beginnings. Verse 7 again. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls upon me. This is not about us. It's about any nation at any time. It was about Israel, and now we see ourselves in the mirror. And if you think the church can get away with from this one, think again. If you wonder why a nation loses its way, it's not because we haven't elected a Christian. That's not it. It's because the church isn't preaching the whole counsel of God's word. It's because we have let go of the only hope and we've grasped for other ones. Even the notion that we think that we need a Christian in elected elected office is us grasping at something else besides Jesus. The reason that our nation and any nation fails is because they don't cling to the only hope. And I think it's this this picture of this half-baked cake that we see in the next part that should give us the most cause for concern that brings me to the second point, the burned cake. Again, there's quite a bit here in these similes. They're a convicting picture for me as I read them and understood them and read others who understood them much better than than I did for for society, for the church. We'll go over them briefly. Verse 8. 
Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. So we have this picture of a cake not turned, which really is kind of a picture of the whole situation. And understand cake, too, when we hear the word cake, we kind of think of this thing that's tall and has some icing on it, you know. But in those days, a cake would have been much more like a pancake that we think today, right? They would have put this bread in the oven and flipped it over and cooked it on both sides, and it would kind of serve as the bread for the meal. And so just imagine this, this picture of this pancake, then, that is only cooked on one side. What happens to a pancake when you only cook it on one side? Well, there's two things wrong with it. One side is burned, and the other side is raw. It's completely inedible. It's never been turned. Burned on one side, raw on the other. This pancake doesn't know what it is. Is it burned? Is it raw? Is it even a pancake? It's not edible? Scottish theologian George Adam Smith said this of this unturned cake, and I thought this was just fantastic. How better describe a half-fed people, a half-cultured society, a half-lived religion, a half-hearted policy, than by a half-baked scone? Well, for us, pancakes, since we're not British. Fantastic quote. So how does this happen? How is it that Israel doesn't know who they are? How is it that they are like this unturned cake, burned on one side, raw on the other, completely useless? How is it that the church doesn't know who we are? Well, he tells us, verse eight, first part, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. That's how. Strangers devour his strength. Verse 9. He knows it not. Machen understood this as we've been studying Machen's book on Wednesday nights. He understood this as the greatest danger to the church. The admission of unbelievers into the fellowship and worse into the pulpits of the church. For Israel was their continued mixing with the Canaanites of old. That old problem that keeps on rearing its head. Then with the Assyrians and Babylonians, as time passed on, their old friends, the Egyptians, even get thrown in there as well. You name it, Israel was interested in mixing it into their own distinctiveness so that they don't even know who they are at the end of the day. They made themselves available to all takers, which is why the term adulterer in verse 4 works perfect for them. The next picture is of a gray-haired man that doesn't realize that he's gone gray. The man looks in the mirror and he sees the fact that he's not 18 anymore, right? I realize that some people go gray at 18, but most of us don't. Yet he refuses to acknowledge it. Verse 9, second part. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. If they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. The gray-haired man should look in the mirror and realize his limitations. But not this one. Though they have the Lord of glory calling back to them. Come to me, says the creator. Says the one who said, these are my people, my precious possession. He's calling them back. 
And yet they do not return. They don't seek him for all of this. The next picture is of a dove flying around. Verse 11, if Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria, dove flying around from place to place, not knowing where to land, which is exactly how Israel seemed in its last years, seeking an alliance with any nation and all nations, desperate for salvation from somewhere, anywhere, except for the only one that could save them. Notice what the Lord does. They're like this dove flying around. So as they go, verse 12, I will spread over them my net and bring them down like the birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. And that's what this is all about, really. Those who love the Lord should welcome his discipline. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about this, this kind of language of rebuke. These Proverbs were available to the people of Israel at the time, but they must have thought, you know what, these Proverbs are okay, but we have better ideas. Let's look at one of these Proverbs. I think it's important for us to see this. We've oftentimes turned to Hebrews chapter 12 in this concept of discipline, which is totally 100% right and good. I strongly encourage you to look at Hebrews 12 in your own study this week to understand why it is that the Lord disciplines His covenant people. But here in Proverbs chapter 9, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 9. I want you to see this as well. Because I think this is a perfect picture of what we're dealing with here. Solomon who wrote these words hundreds of years previous. Proverbs 9, 7-9 through 9, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. But he who reproves a wicked man incurs, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instructions to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The wise man recognizes their folly and turns from it, all the while it's accepting this life-giving rebuke. Proverbs also say that he who accepts a life-giving rebuke is at home among the wise. Yet how does the evil man receive it? As an insult. Reprove the scoffer, they will hate you. Correct the wicked man, get yourself abused. All the prophets spoke to Israel this way. Hosea is not the first. It's not as if they're, they're hearing about their wickedness just now. They had Moses. Moses let them know. They had the law. They knew it was right. They had the prophets over and over telling them, hey, if you don't turn from your wicked ways, there's going to be destruction. But Jesus... He knew how stubborn these people were when he came. And he said just that, right? Concerning Moses and the prophets. He said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets in Luke 16, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they're not even going to believe it if a man would rise from the dead. And that's exactly what happened, right? What about for us, church? A man has risen from the dead. 
Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father. He is risen. Do we accept his life-giving rebuke? Or do we make our home in the house of a fool? You've all heard the verse in Second Chronicles. You know, this is the kind of thing that people will have a little wooden plaque in their house for. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, shall seek, shall pray, and shall seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Very familiar passage from Second Chronicles 7. The questions for us then is, do we want this land healed? Do we long to see people turn to Jesus? The fire is lit for sure, right? The oven burns hot, even though it remains unstirred. What better way for us to stir the fire than to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? The plain teaching of Scripture is that Jesus gave His life as a ransom for many, that whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. It's very simple and plain. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's what He tells us in John 3. Because He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is no other way. And this brings us to the last point, the consuming fire. Look with me again at Hosea 7, verse 13. Woe to them, for they have strayed from Me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against Me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Those who stray, woe to them. Destruction is coming. He would redeem them, but instead they speak lies. Blasphemy is something that God takes very serious. He will not tolerate as we read through the Ten Commandments and as we study front through them, we're going to see the serious nature from which He holds the Third Commandment, which says that we should not blaspheme His name. He says, I will not hold him guilt, guiltless who takes my name in vain. And rather to rather than cry out to God as they should in repentance, verse 14 tells us how they cry out to God. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for rain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. They cry on their beds. Not about their sin but about how they don't have anything to eat. Rather than have sorrow for their sin, they're sorry that they don't have any wine today. I think verse 15 is telling as well, although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. God has trained them. He's risen them up, right? But they're using this against Him. They're They're using the fact that they have been strengthened by the Lord to devise evil against the Lord. Which is pretty much Psalm 2 in a nutshell. Turn with me to Psalm 2. It's one that we quote from a lot because it's it's very good in helping us see our own sin and then God's place and understanding of that sin. Psalm 2 is ultimately a psalm about our Lord Jesus and His coming. Understand this in the context of Hosea 7 and just kind of hear these words and what we've read from Hosea 7. I'll read the first six verses of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and 
and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is what we just read, right? They devise evil against the Lord and against his anointed. This is talking about our Lord himself. Let us burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Meaning, let's distance ourselves from God because we have made it. We are on our own. We are going to make it without him. He is much too restrictive for us. We're going to do our own thing and notice the Lord's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The nations rage and plot against the Lord, yet he laughs. And he has some words of wrath for them. What are his words of wrath? They're going to terrify him in his fury. And what is his fury? I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. This is no mere human king that he's referring to that will be glad to hear about the evil of the people that we read in verse 3 of Hosea 7. This is no mere human king. This is the king of all kings. To those who call upon his name, he will save them from the wrath of God. But for those who don't, he, the king of kings, the Lord, God's anointed one, will become a consuming fire. And he will put to shame any half-baked pancake notion of plotting against him. Church, we stand at a crucial time in history, not because this time is any different than any other time in the last 2,000 years since Jesus has come at all. The presence of the United States doesn't make this particular time important, more important than the others, just because we live here. But it's important because Jesus has still chosen not to return. For whatever reason, he continues to wait. He has not returned, so there is still time to tell the world that he is coming. There is still time for repentance. There is still hope for eternal life for those who don't know him. This consuming fire, the one who is on Zion's holy hill, is also our place for rest. And it's a place for anyone who would call upon his name to have rest for their souls. Christ is the stumbling block to those who don't believe, but he's the rock of stability, the anchor for our souls, for those of us who do. So if you're in Christ this morning, the call is to repentance and to action. Let us not stray from the gospel message, both in our lives and in our message to the world. Let us be faithful to the truth of the gospel. It is the only hope. There is no other way. But if you're not in Christ here this morning, the call for you is to repentance. Turn from your wicked ways and turn to Jesus. He's the only hope for your salvation. And If you die having not called upon his name, then he will be a consuming fire. There's no other way to the Father. Call upon his name and be saved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us in him hold fast to that hope that we have. Let's go to him in prayer.